You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori, and I'm the director of creative and marketing here. Today, I have with me Helen Rebanks, author of The Farmer's Wife, My Life in Days. Thanks for being here, Helen. Oh, thanks so much, Ross. Good to connect across the pond. <laughs> across the pond with a very serious delay because you are on a farmstead in the Lake District, and I imagine you probably are not wired for super fast internet where you are. No, I'm recording in uh, the end of our sheep shed um, in a little like apartment we rent out now and again, and it's we're in the Lake District, yes, which is the northwest of England. Um, we have we're in a little valley and have a satellite system for broadband on the on the end of the sheep shed. I think that's the first time that, that collection of words has been said on the podcast. So I'm always happy to break new ground like that. I've really enjoyed um, the books of your husband, James Rebanks, The Shepherd's Life, Modern Dispatches from an Ancient Landscape, as well as Pastoral Song, A Farmer's Journey. I think they're really fascinating books about returning to the old ways of being a shepherd and what that means for both our lived experiences and the quality of our lives, and also about food ways and what has changed with industrial agriculture. And then you wrote this book, I think if you didn't tell me that they were connected books, I almost wouldn't know because so much of it is about domestic life. They seem a little yeah, bit different I mean, in a way. They quite are. They are different. They're of the same story. Of course they are. We're we're a, a family farm, a team here. We work together and everything we do on this small farm is interconnected. But I have a very different story to tell to James um, in that I wanted to shine a light on sort of the as you say, the domestic life that I lead here on the farm as a farmer's wife that is often ignored in this modern, crazy, busy, look at me world, celebrate the individual all the time. And my life is very much of supporting, running the family, the doing all the background jobs, all the, the little hidden what seem insignificant jobs, but actually are the glue that holds everything together. And I think an awful lot of people still live these lives, but they were trying to escape them somehow. But I've looked at it slightly different in the book and through my life of, of I really want to value that work that I do and of other people do the same thing. And there's an awful lot of women still doing this. Um, and it's just, it was stories about food family connection love healthy food from the soil look how we look after the animals on the farm i wanted to share all of that and and add to the conversation my tiny voice into this <laughs> wow you said that so much better than i and why wouldn't you it's your story uh you have a couple moments that relate to that too you have you're at a party at one point and someone describes your life as being uh tiny you also talk about the importance of things being mundane which i learned just means of the world uh at its root yes. and it's a celebration of that and i think people i mean your husband's story is interesting too right he's a shepherd grown up farm boy and he gets miracled into oxford and has a sort of literary career that is unexpected from where he came from, but ultimately returns to the the roots, which is, you know, quote unquote, a tiny life, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be meaningful or 
perhaps the most important thing many of us could do. Oh, absolutely. Yes, I, I, we've been together a long time. So I've been on this journey with James since when I met him when I was 18. And um, we we really knew early on together that throwing it in together and supporting each other the best way we could was the way of building our future. And we didn't quite know what that looked like, but he had a, a real passion and a dream to hold on to this ancient family farm. And that was a real struggle at times, um, financially and, oh gosh, in family systems with succession issues, with other family being involved in the farm. And I was, I just threw it all in with him and I was like, life is better when you're around. And he was the same with me. And we just kind of figured it out together to try and make a life here. And that took us down to Oxford together for Oh, say four years we lived down there. And for me, I always thought I wanted to escape the farm life and escape that kind of, gosh, the chores and the routine. And the, I mean, my parents and grandparents that I, they just worked so hard from morning till night. It was a slog. And I thought that life isn't really for me. <laughs> and here I am living it. So, I mean, um, yeah, I'm full in, into it now. Um, both feet but when I lived in Oxford with James I tried different jobs as I graduated with a, a fine art degree and nothing was really sitting well with me in a world that was chasing money and things and material things there wasn't a sense of community around it wasn't till we came back and got married and I realized how much we needed both of our families and they got involved in the helping set up our wedding and it was a very handcrafted wedding and up in a field next to my parents farm in a what was it a marquee sounds fancy but it was a big tent that we decked out and made pretty with lots of flowers and bits and pieces and we needed both families involved to make that what it was which was a celebration of us coming together and making a life here and then I became a mum and again gosh you know that's huge transformation going from just your two selves against the world thinking you can do anything to needing family around to help support you um I mean it does take a village to raise a child doesn't it and we now have four and that just is uh, incredibly I'm incredibly lucky um to be able to say that and that our families have supported us and helped us and we live close to them and we've made choices along the way to live like we do now. And it's not a modern sort of setup, really. It's not, it just looks really traditional old fashioned, but it actually works. I mean, we've got, he's got a set of skills here. I've got a set of skills here. We bring them together. We're stronger together. I'm just thinking about, you know, the journey we've been on together. And that was part of creating the book in the last couple of years for me, that I wanted to do something artistic creative put together my recipes and and stories from my life so that our children could see what mum was all about really as much as what dad was about um and that the outside work the inside work in the home is every bit as important as the outside so much of your early story I struggled in the intro trying to explain the feeling that I got out of it but I picked up a lot of melancholy and desire 
an uncertainty about the path that you had. And it seems motherhood was the calling that started to bring you back to appreciating and maybe reverencing this part of life that is so commonly neglected that you're trying to celebrate and say, actually, there's a lot of honor uh, to accept this role freely chosen, even though you might have opportunities in the big city. But who cares about that in some ways? The main job, the stereotypical job, the job that everyone expects everyone to do to stay in their hometown and take over the family farm. That's a good thing to do. And that's okay. Am I right, by the way? Yes. Am, I, am I picking up on those feelings from you? Okay. Yes, very much so, Ross. I think that that is, is the case. And a lot of us go through our early 20s not having a clue which direction we're going in, not really knowing what our life's sort of calling is. And I don't, I'm still, I'm mid 40s, I'm still figuring things out. And I'd say to my younger self, hang in there and follow your curiosity with things. And certainly being alongside James while he's been creating the books that he's written um, has allowed me into a world like of reading texts and, and thinking about stories and words and and the journey we've been on on the farm has been creative as well. We've had to figure out how to make a small hill farm uh, sustainable uh, in, and and fit for purpose for the future to earn us the living to stay here and to be something that we're incredibly proud of that we can stand and say you know farming farmers are not the bad guys of this whole climate change conversation that's happening um farmers can be heroes of it too and i think it's an incredibly exciting time to to be farming um, I love bringing the kids up here and they're involved with every aspect of the farm, um, including the paperwork and the record keeping. We're involving them in in decisions and, con you know, conversations about what we're doing for the future and how we're planning things. And um, that's I think that's exciting. It is exciting. I have read so many books about farming and uh, memoirs of farmers. And I think yours is the greatest job of disillusioning one, that it is a slower life or more idyllic in the countryside. It seems a lot of your book is about difficulty and struggle, and it does not seem to be an easy life necessarily compared to the city where maybe you have a small, easy to manage apartment. You go to your job, you come home, you're done. It seems that your your work is never done, and that isn't necessarily a bad thing. No, life is work and work is life. And I suppose it's it's good to recognize that we need a break from the farm because everywhere we look around, there was always there's always work to do and things to think about. Um, but it's fulfilling, it's rewarding, it's purposeful. It it's all of those good things. It's out in nature, it's connecting with the landscape and the wildlife around us and the livestock and we run six border collie sheepdogs here. So I've had them out this morning. I've been to the fence, the cows. We have a herd of belted Galloway cows. I was there before breakfast with our 11-year-old son to move the electric fence. James is away in Oslo this week. Um, so we all step in and pitch in to do the jobs to keep the place running. And I'm getting that dose of fresh air and... Oh, I mean, the wind was hitting me as I was on the quad bike. You, do you call it a four-wheeler? Um, 
and right, that's fine. <laughs> it was raining this morning and the clouds then parted and there was the most stunning rainbow and the blue sky peeked through and it was just glorious and I'm in all the autumn colors here like the trees are changing I just love it it's just magical and it's extremely hard work so it can be two things at the same time can't it it's appreciating these things and part of the stories through the book for me are noticing the small things of daily life that that we all we all need to I think appreciate so much more you know the smell of something warm as you come in and through the door to make you feel oh that's great you know there's some food cooking or some bread baking or I don't know simple simple pleasures um I think it's great to be reminded of the beauty of everyday things it's so easy to forget we've talked about on this show before uh Mary Oliver is a poet that I like coming back to she always reminds me to oh you're swooning so clearly this is yeah, connecting with you Mary Oliver exactly I mean my one wild and precious life it that is just we've all got one haven't we what are we going to do with it and how are we going to live how are we going to live to how do we live uh to leave things for our children to honor the world we're living in to be connected with each other I I feel sad when I think about the world as it is right now and we're almost more connected than we ever have been. You and I can speak for across the world, can't we, right now? But at the same time, our news feed is full of atrocities and sadness and devastation. And it it's so hard to not to keep hold of like some positive thread sometimes, isn't it? It absolutely is. I like that about your writing. And it is a very strong reminder that even if a life is quote unquote tiny, not saying that it is because your life is both extraordinary. I mean, you're part of a literary power couple and you are, <laughs> so you're, you're extraordinary, but also your life is extremely mundane um, and everyday and old. This is not something that's new. Maybe there are parts of it that are new. Some of the tech is new, but the life way is as old as the hills yeah. essentially. Um, and that's okay. That's a beautiful thing. And that reminder, I think, is something that we probably all need. Yeah, well, I, I hope to share that with my books. And I think James has tried to do that as well with his, that, you know, sometimes we can chase modernity a bit too, too far down the wrong path, can't we? Um, and those reminders just to step back from it and think, what are we, what are we doing here? Um, yeah, and how we live in, as I, as I said a minute ago, it's really important to us. Um, and I think stories and books are just a way of, once you open your world and share your story, you can connect with all sorts of people. And I've been so moved by the messages I'm getting from readers from the book. Gosh, it's amazing that I'm connecting with readers across the world that feel seen and heard in a book that their lives hadn't been represented necessarily before in a story and just I mean I described that mental juggle of things that I have to do every day of whether it's however small school runs and swimming lessons and uh, dogs to the vets or something you know what's for supper how what am I cooking that day 
how am I cooking it um and what's rising to the top of my priorities without getting that overload of stress that we can all feel so I quite often pause quite often take myself off for a quick walk have a bit of fresh air recalibrate and think none of this is like too much I'm gonna reassess and I'm I'm also gonna say no to lots of things I'm gonna opt out um and choose the things that fit better into how we live and what we value it becomes so easy to look at all of your chores as the things to get through so you can get back to your real life I often have this with my son sometimes where I might be cooking and I might be trying to treat this as dad's alone time. And really I'm seeing a curious kid where I should be inviting him in. And I often do, but sometimes I just don't have the heart for it, but this is not the thing to get through. This is the thing itself. And it's so easy to forget. It's really easy to forget. And sometimes it's a lot quicker to do things ourselves than have a child hanging on our, our tail to try and get things sorted um, when you want to be quick. But I am a big fan of getting kids in the kitchen. You've hit on something that I'm really passionate about there, Ross, because feeding ourselves and understanding where our food's coming from and is so important. And I bang on about this quite a lot with the school system that we've got here. And, oh, I have regular emails back and forth about what's on the menu for the school meals or what are they doing in the they have food technology lessons here and that bothers me in this in the title because actually it's cooking let's get back to cooking lessons and it's let's cooking. not have three yeah let's not have three lessons to one to have a demonstration of how to make the thing the next week they're going to make the thing and the third week they're going to reflect or analyze and fill in lots of forms about how they could have done it better and I'm like that's three weeks of you could have been doing a huge range of dishes over three weeks yeah. instead of a fruit salad. Um, yeah, I I love having the kids in the kitchen and our eldest daughter's just about to turn 18. She's a chef in a local restaurant. She's working full time. Wow. Um, so she's followed into the food side of things. Our uh, second daughter's worked in a butcher's for a, a few shifts and um is very proud of how she can package up all the different products and make it look super smart and um labeled and and she's she's yeah involved in every aspect on the farm um as they all are really but yeah it's it's great to get them involved in cooking for sure farther upstream from that just about the food production itself are you oriented against the industrial food system? Do you think this should be supplemental? How do you think we should be thinking about the food that we produce and consume? I think we're up against it, aren't we? Because it's all around us, industrial food. Um, we're really up against it. And our heads are often quite like full of all the demands that modern life has on us. Um, just making a living for a start and, and paying our bills is a major thing and what is it now we're we're only spending it's heading to what seven percent of our income now on food where it used to be about 33 wow. percent and i know for lower income families that is about 15 percent. so i mean that we're not spending as much on food as we used to we've forced farmers into a situation where it's ever cheaper isn't it we're squeezing everything on price and value 
and then supermarkets are full of packaged goods that claim all sorts of things and I'm a big fan of Michael Pollan and keeping things absolutely simple as let's think about meat fish vegetables some you know pulses and grains and good dairy let's think about how our grandparents ate and cooked um and that's pretty much how I run my kitchen we produce lots of our own beef and lamb and get a local veg box delivered but industrial food systems they're just uh I don't know it's it's huge but I think we can all make a difference in how we shop and cook and eat and we can ask questions when we go out where is that chicken and that sandwich come from let's check on the packet if we have the time but we also need legislation in place to get this stuff off our shelves that is damaging the environment um it's a big question isn't it how do you solve it for me I didn't think I had much of a voice in this I started at the beginning saying you know my tiny contribution to this is actually quite important in that I'm a mum I'm the one responsible for buying the food in the family and shopping every you know every couple of days every three four days I'll pop and get some groceries I've got quite a lot of power in my pocket and my hand of where I spend that food and what I consider purchasing for our family to eat so I'm thinking what's going to give me good value but be nutritional for them what's going to fill them up and um, keep them healthy you know I've got growing children here it's my priority to give them balanced meals um, and I, I think the person whoever it doesn't have to be the mom it's not it's it's the person that responsible for that in the household has a huge job to and a huge role to play in this climate conversation it's so important and we do have power we can ask lots of questions and we can support our local butcher and we can go and get local vegetables and we should be checking that where the ingredients are coming from and if you look on the back of the packet and it's full of all sorts of chemical things that's not going to do our bodies any good that's going to have a huge knock-on effect on our health and then a healthcare system picking up the pieces later down the line yeah I mean I'm just really passionate about simple keeping it really simple it's all very strong advice at the individual level I've also seen things that one step up from that about school lunches and about government procurement. I grew up eating horribly processed calzones and hamburgers in a bag and stuff like that. That one of my colleagues was talking about how she missed a thing called Tony's Galaxy Pizzas. And I looked it up. I don't think I ever had it, but I don't know that much food is more processed than that. And I doubt it's good for anyone short term, medium term, long term. And it's crazy to me that a, an institution that is ostensibly there to nurture children would not put more of an emphasis on that. I think it's starting to change too. I've also seen things like the the school lunches in France that are incredibly fresh and, and diverse and local and they're not the way that we have. It doesn't have to be this way. But I think there are places that parents, even if you're thinking at just the family level, could probably make a difference. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And I just um, was chatting to a friend who was going to Denmark as part of an organic uh, milk 
uh, visit. Um, and she was talking about in the Danish uh, local procurement, it's all about local food, getting into schools and hospitals and council offices and organic food. Um, and this shouldn't be wildly expensive. This should be supported properly. And we should be caring about how we're growing this food. I, I'm all for people choosing whatever they want to eat. But my message would be, ask the question how it's farmed to start with. Is this benefiting the land that we live on? Is it grown in a sustainable way? Is it regenerating things? Is it healthy? Or is it coming from a monoculture? And I know I've gone off on a tangent there, haven't I, Ross? But we're, okay. yeah, the leading people that it should be put, putting good food is certainly in hospitals and schools. That should be baseline, shouldn't it? Because food is medicine. It really boggles so the much. mind to think about it in that way. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, so much to say. Exactly, just, you know, I, I think it it can get tangled up to be too tricky. But for me and my family, keeping it local, thinking about what we can grow in our landscape should sustain us. And let's not fly in things from all across the world. And let's think about the soil first. Um, and it's becoming a bit more prevalent and a bit more understanding. People are just so up against it in, in the world we're living in and I think through the stories that I've tried to put in the book it's about connections making those connections and getting kind of a love for cooking back and not seeing it as something to escape from that it's something so many meals now are eaten in the car aren't they or on the hoof as you at the desk or rushing around for me, a table, getting together around a table is absolutely vital. Um, like as little or as often as you can, but do it as a family or as a partnership or with your friends and share some food together that you, that you know where it's come from and just ha explain what the food is that you're having and talk about it and just do some simple, simple things like that around the table because it's going to taste better for a start. And then everybody's going to be like, wow, that's delicious. And then it just means it's inspiring, isn't it? Um, that's part of what I want to do as, you know, as farmers here and as storytellers and opening up our life into memoir. And yeah, it's important work, I think. Bringing people together in that way with regard to food is a good thing to do, I think, for its own sake as well. One of the, you don't put it in so fine of a phrase here as I'm going to put it in, but I've said this on the show before that I think for the vast bulk of humanity, the most important thing that they're going to do is to raise a family and to be a good parent. And that's one of those things that you have a fair amount of control over. Some might even say total control over if you accept that amount of responsibility and being able to show up and be with your family it could be, it might not be the most important climate thing you can do, but um, that isn't everything either. And that's why this show has so much that is about Mary Oliver, tininess, uh, domesticity, and that could also make a better world, even if the the climate impact is not, not merely as great. Then again, if you're eating really you know, climate positive food here, local, organic, animals that are well treated, that can definitely figure into this too. But even that core point, I think, is, is super neglected. 
It, it certainly is. And I, I think there was somebody, there's a writer in the UK that uh, did a bit of blurb for my book. And she said that sometimes it's a, we have a quiet power as parents in how we raise our children and the choice of food we put on the table. And it's like a, it's a, it is a quiet power. We do have it. And I, I've always recognized it and understood it. And I've sort of felt that society doesn't value it um, and wants us to escape motherhood and domesticity and all, you know, as if it, everything I was fed as a young teen and growing up was, yeah, escape it, get your kids into childcare, get off to work again as fast as you possibly can. And that didn't sit well with me. I thought these, I've got these wild and precious lives in my hands here. They're relying on me, entirely on me. And how we shape the future is, is how we bring up our children and, and let's bring up them to be kind, decent, honorable, caring, you know, citizens that can have conversations and look adults in the eye and understand nuance and and let's have lots of brilliant time with them and enjoy their childhoods um and the world we're living in seems to want us to, to kind of race through that go faster produce more earn more work harder and and then when you do get a holiday with them for a few days you're so exhausted you just all fall out anyway I mean let, let's not live like that that just doesn't work for me <laughs> because it just it just feels felt wrong. Um, so I've always put it as a priority. Um, and it has at times jarred with modern life. It's made me feel small sometimes in, in get togethers or I don't know, self-worth battles in my own head, you know, am I worthy enough? Am I doing the right thing by prioritizing this and and not prioritizing myself sometimes and putting their needs much higher on the list than mine. Um, so the book is an exploration of that as well as a woman kind of living, thinking about all of those things. And I, yeah, I do think that together we're stronger and sometimes it isn't, it isn't all rosy and it isn't all brilliant and it's not all fair and balanced, but it's sort of ups and downs of family life. It does not seem overly rosy. As I put it at the start of the show, it seems a life of difficulty and that's something that can be celebrated or appreciated for its own sake here too. You have stories in the book about hanging out with James and he has big fancy pants colleagues who are talking about books and essays and maybe they're things that you don't care about as much or haven't read and sometimes being made to feel or maybe you, you just feel lesser as a result. I think a lot of that I'm guilty of a lot of bookishness and referencing and, oh, look at me, I'm smart. I've referenced things and aren't I uh, cheeky and good? And um, I don't know that it's worth anything. Ultimately, I think the things that you describe are, are often the the real thing. And those other things are, if you've ever had marital difficulties or periods where you didn't know if you were going to sustain as a family at all, you realize that all of those other things are pure flash and they don't actually matter that much. And none of those ideas are going to attend your funeral. <laughs> they don't actually care about you. They're disembodied thoughts. <laughs> and it's so easy to forget that. 
I'm totally nodding away, Ross. You've got it nail on the head there. It is easy to forget that. And we can get drawn into all sorts of different worlds and hype and ego and all that kind of nonsense. And for me, I've, I'm very grounded. I think living a life on a farm, it, it certainly helps. Um, you know, I'll step out the sheep shed in a minute. It's been raining solid for about, gosh, I don't know how many days, but it's muddy. <laughs> my my shoes, my boots have mud on them. I I battle mud daily coming in and out of the house. Um, and my arms are usually deep in a hot sink of soapy water, washing up the next bowl, of, you know, set of pans and cooking equipment and things. It is very grounding. And it's just, it, I think sometimes you don't realize what you've got right under your nose. And I, I maybe thought from time to time, my life wasn't kind of exciting or interesting. And then I've shared the stories in the book. And then <laughs> what I'm finding is the, the readers are going, this is my life too. And this matters. And yes, I agree with you. This matters. This stuff really holds things together. Um, and I'm so, certainly enjoying the the ride of the whole journey of publishing and putting it out there. I just talked to a friend and um, at lunchtime and I said, one of the biggest things people are saying is, gosh, it's so honest, Helen. It's so honest. It's so personal. I'm like, maybe we're not used to people just telling the truth about how it feels <laughs> to just do ordinary things. No, we... Yeah. I, don't, I do not think that we, <laughs> we are really... <laughs> any of that Helen this might be a little bit of a punt I'm going to use some British lingo there but uh have you followed the trend I know you're an artist you appreciate aesthetics the trend of minimalism have you noticed that being so popular in the last couple years yes and I see a bit of this on Instagram here and there yes I'm aware of it yes (laughs) Is there something connected to this? It's like a sterility and a cleanness. Obviously, it's opposed to sort of the coziness of the bric-a-brac farmhouse style that I imagine your home probably feels more like. But do you think that is a visual representation of what modern life wants us to be, which is sort of clean, simple, unattached? There's almost no sentimentality to minimalism. It's almost just it's blank on purpose. Is that... Am I reading too much into it or is there is there something there? I think there probably is something there that we should all clean everything out, make it all pure and white and live these sort of clinical lives that everything's clean and we eat all these plants and it's all very simplified. And real life is not like that. It's messy, it's smelly, it's dirty, it's, oh my goodness, it's rich, it's rewarding. And it's life should be fun and not let's just I have let go of having to keep everything neat and in order. I grew up in a house that was a bed and breakfast. Um, so we had visitors coming into the farmhouse all the time. We used to have to keep it ever so neat and tidy and organized. And I live in much more sort of messy chaos now with four children. I I'm fighting an uphill struggle with the mess and <laughs> that that all brings. We all have different boots and shoes and coats and rain gear and um, swimming stuff on the side regularly, wet towels dumped in a heap. I mean, life, 
this minimalism that you speak about what that is that's not a real life it's not it it doesn't feature in my world it's maybe nice to flick on an image on Instagram that looks all perfect and it could be calming a room yeah let's declutter now and again and not have so much junk around <laughs> but uh, we're surrounded by books um we like art we like music on we like fun laughter dancing family meals and minimalism doesn't fit in very well with that for me <laughs> yeah a celebration of mud on your wellies probably uh doesn't match <laughs> that aesthetic or maybe it'd be a great contrast for instagram i'm not sure <laughs> have you seen regeneration in your land running animals through them and mob grazing does it seem like your experience with animal agriculture is a net positive for the land that you steward? Absolutely. We have changed our farming system from what's described would be described as set stocking, which is just open the gate and let the sheep in and, and not have them in for like, well, have them in a longer time and just have them everywhere. And, what we've done is really focused on regenerative practices of mob grazing like you described. So they're in for about three days in much smaller fields now, and we electric fence in any bigger fields. So we're moving them through the pastures um, either every day or every two or three days. And we're grazing a third, we're trampling a third, and we're leaving a third of that grass that's there. Uh, grasses, herbs, flowers, there's all sorts in the fields now. And regeneration comes so quickly when you give lots land lots of rest. So it's all been about preparation going into winter, giving the, the ground lots of growing time. And we will outwinter all our cattle on this system. Um, and there'll be, uh, I mean, just move daily. So we're, we're moving the cows to the grass we're not bringing the grass into them in sheds we're not hauling you know making loads of silage and and haylage through the summer anymore we're cutting the costs down a lot of this has been around costs input costs into the farm and cutting that right back and working with nature working with the sunshine and the rainfall and just keeping it super simple and providing amazing habitats for wildlife around the farm as well so we've gosh I'm thinking about it in the last about three three to five years we've planted 36,000 trees across the farm wow hedgerows uh, rest, restored um we've re-wiggled rivers we've now got 20 something ponds on the farm there wasn't any standing water beforehand so we know all of all the science about wetlands being huge carbon sinks as well um it's just been phenomenal to witness the changes and they say build it and they will come you know like the biggest little farm kind of story about all the nature coming around to the farm it happens so quickly it's been magical the barn owls have come back because there's long grass for the voles and the mice to scurry around and hide um we've got heron Great. Uh, so those grey heron come and they follow the sheep or the cattle through the fields and they're looking for frogs in the grass. And we didn't think heron were a particularly field kind of bird. We thought they would go around the wetlands and eat what was around the wet 
They love to be in long grass because the sheep and cows disturb the frogs. Um, there's bird life all over the farm. We've got bird species that we haven't seen that are on the red list in the UK because there's just much more for them to eat because the grasses are longer. So there's tons more insects, spiders, and, and we've got bats. Um, oh, I could go on. It just red squirrel. It's just amazing. Um, so yeah, we're working with nature, regenerating the farm, doing the mob grazing. It has all these knock on effects for a healthier farm, a healthy ecosystem. Um, it's just a joy to live here and a joy to be part of it. Like I said before, it's an exciting time to be farming. There's a lot of diversity in what you're growing and what you've described, but from my understanding of, of y'all's books, there is uh, the main operation is about breeding rams. Is that tufts, as I, I'm told they're, they're called? Is that correct still? Yes, breeding tups, and uh, we also, with the with the cattle, we're into the breeding lines of those as well. So we will sell bulls and some breeding females going forward. We've been building up our herd over the last five years, and the oakle or sheep that don't go on to reproduce the next year. So we would cast cast them off for meat, and then we would also select some of the younger male stock predominantly that don't make the grade for breeding stock so our spare male lambs for example go to a local butcher who will finish them off and the same for the bullocks but they're all raised on grass and they don't have any medicines or treatments a few little bit for the sheep's feet that's a situation we can't quite shake off with the sheep here um but the cattle certainly have never been had anything else other than a vaccination when they first when they were young stock um which i'm incredibly proud of you know and they don't have any bought feed into them no grain and corn sheep have famously a large carbon footprint per kilogram of meat is it less when they're raised this way or are most sheep raised in more conventional concentrated animal feedlot operation scenarios is actually how they're raised yeah that's the case i mean it's it's not the case for our hours how we are um now i'm thinking about the sheep that go up onto our fell land graze on a real diverse pasture of herbs and grasses they produce an incredibly healthy meat and they don't they're not a problem for us climate wise and um at all uh they're raising a lamb and they're just incredibly good for the system that we've got here. It's not a negative system. Um, we've worked with farm tool, farm carbon toolkit, and they came and audited us uh, a couple of years ago. And we're, it's carbon neutral, the whole farm. Um, so it's working. That's good to hear. I think when people will think about the story of animal agriculture and climate change, the story that they've been told is pretty simple about you just should not participate in it as a consumer. But I think if you add the regeneration part of the story in and what animals can actually do to the land when they're mimicking the prey predator chasing and moving them frequently, it can create 
lots of additional benefits beyond just carbon that I think if you just compare it to how animals are treated and managed in uh, conventional agricultural systems, I think if you have to choose between that and veganism, you should, it's probably better for everyone to be a vegan. But I also agree, you spend a lot of time talking about um, the amount of processing that goes into some of the more synthetic animal-ish products out there. I think people forget about that too. That's you know, highly, that's monocropped, it's pesticide, it's not good for the environment compared to animal agriculture in the conventional system may be better for you and the planet. But if you stop there, you're missing the more important point, I think. Yeah. Uh, and let's not forget who the main culprit of climate change is, fossil fuels. Let's just not forget that. It's always like, we we need to consider our diet but the you know 90 percent the uk's greenhouse gas gas emissions are fo fossil fuel based mm. and animal agriculture gets such a bad rap it's just if it's done properly and done right and if farmers are supported to do it properly in regenerative ways healthy ecosystems can handle we can pump carbon back into the soil we can work with ecosystems we can produce healthy food it shouldn't just be you know i'm trying to think of this like it shouldn't just be binary that's bad and that's good plant-based is good and meat's bad no not at all it can be we can have nature and farming not two separate things it's it's all joined up um yeah, I mean, we've always adapted our landscapes to grow food. Indigenous people have done this for millennia. And let's just think about what we've done to destroy things and try and work together to make it better by choosing better food from better farming. Helen, thank you so much for, for taking a risk on being on a show called Reversing Climate Change, putting you on the spot here to to, to maybe uh, <laughs> quiz you. No, I really I really respect and love what both of you do. I think it's an amazing story. I think anyone listening who likes the timbre of this conversation should clearly pick up The Farmer's Wife, My Life in Days. Thanks for being here, Helen. Oh, thank you, Ross. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. It's been a lot of fun and it's, yeah, I mean, none of us are too small to make a difference. That would be my message. It's a lovely sentiment to end on. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.